Welcome to the Oxford Martin School. My name is uh, Charles Godfrey, I'm the director, and it's my enormous pleasure to welcome our speaker this evening, David Nabarro, and you can see David's title on the screen in front of you. Uh, David has a long and an illustrious career, has worked in government, has worked in many roles in the United Nations, including the Special Representative Advisor and Envoy of the United Nations Secretary General with special responsibility for food security and nutrition. Uh, David was also the uh, recipient of the World Food Prize with Lawrence Haddad in October 2018, which was fabulous news. Uh, David is doing all sorts of things at the moment. He's Professor of Global Health at Imperial College. He's curating Food Systems Dialogue, which is an extraordinary series of events looking at the future of food throughout the world. Uh, and finally, he supports uh, a social enterprise called uh, 4SD, based in Switzerland and is building human capital to achieve the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, David, you're extremely welcome to the Martin School. Please come and give us your talk. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Charles. Well, what an opportunity to be here with you all this afternoon. And uh, actually what I'm going to do is to take you through a journey that I've been involved in for the last 15 years. Uh, but I'm not going to just be satisfied with talking about the past. I want to look ahead to the future. And that's why the, the really emphasis of my conversation is where might this intersection of issues to do with people, food, climate and health move to uh, uh, in, in the coming years. And I suspect that quite a lot of people in this room will be involved in the journey in some way or other. So I'd quite like you to come with me and to think through it as we talk about it. And then at a particular point when I finish talking, just turn off my phone, there'll be a good moment for conversation. And I very much look forward to the discussion now and in the uh, months and years to come. Because we're all part of this journey. It's not something that's just going to be done by prime ministers and presidents and ministers in the decision-making rooms of uh, government. It's not going to be done in the UN. The bringing together of these different issues that are so crucial for our collective future will actually happen in schools, in universities. It'll happen in companies. It'll happen in trades unions. It'll happen in, obviously, different professional organizations. It's going to be something that will involve a very large number of people in collective action. And it's visualizing how that collective action might evolve and the kind of tricky steps that are going to have to be taken that I want to work with you on this afternoon. So the way I'm going to do this is with uh, oratory mostly, and then I will go to some slides towards the end. We are being webcast, so rather than wander around, which is what I was hoping to do. Some of you may have seen I was wandering around as you were coming in. I will stay here because it's easier for the, for the camera. Uh, but I want you to imagine that I'm actually with you and that I'm alongside you as we have this discussion because I think it's intimate for all of us in a rather special way. So my focus today starts in 2015 when the United Nations reflecting 193 different entities, different countries, came together and agreed an overarching plan for the future of the world. And you might say that's a pretty arrogant thing to do, but this was something that was three years in the making between 2012 and 2015. And it was built on the experience of development action that had been uh, underway between uh, 2000 and 2015, what were called the Millennium Development Goals. But this was an altogether different exercise of establishing the plan for the future. And it was different because instead of being a plan that was based just on the needs and interests of people in developing countries, this was a global plan, a universal plan. And it had 17 goals and 169 targets. And it was negotiated in a way that involved taking the views of more than 8 million people through an exercise called The World We Want. 
and it involved more than 60 meetings of different technical groups around the world. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary document. You know it, of course, it's the Sustainable Development Agenda 2030. And within it are the 17 goals that you probably, some of you know, almost off by heart. And it is the only plan that we've got for the future of the world. And because we don't have another world, this is a pretty important plan. And so if at any point you're with people and you say, well, is there a plan for the future? Does anybody have any idea where we might go and how we might be able to make sense of all the contradictions in today's world? The answer is, yes, there is. Now, this plan is mostly famous for its 17 goals. But inside it, there are five key principles that world leaders agreed on that are worth repeating because they're principles that I think apply to just about everything that is done in public life, but particularly to the areas we're talking about today. The first of the principles was that what we're doing for the future must be people-centered. And by people-centered, that means focusing on the interests of all people. And it's recognizing that, that all people have value and that therefore trying to make sure that no one is left behind in planning for the future is absolutely vital. Now, this was agreed by all world leaders. I want to stress this. No world leader said we're not going to be part of this. And in fact, more than 100 countries have actually adopted this agenda in their national planning. So we've got more than 100, actually, countries who've adopted a plan for the future in which they explicitly commit to doing everything they can to leave no one behind and to work for equitable development. And there are four other principles. The first of those is that when thinking about the future, we have to think of the world as a whole. And that means that every country is undergoing development. Every country is having to make changes to ensure that we get systems that are fit for the future. And that universality has meaning. And that was a hugely important innovation brought into the negotiations for this Sustainable Development Agenda by Colombia, but supported by many other countries. So they are universal. They apply everywhere. Number three is that they are interconnected. So instead of thinking of life and the future in terms of separate sectors like health, education, sanitation, economic growth, environment, and uh, um, security, you actually join it all together and say, we're actually going to govern for the totality of people's needs. The fourth principle is that in responding to people's needs, we need to do it in an integrated way, bringing together different actor agencies like government departments, civil society groups, trade unions, and the like. And then the fifth principle is that it should be done through partnership. Because unless there is an intent to partner for the future, we will end up fragmented and fail. So these are the principles that were agreed. And they are being applied more and more in development action and in public interest organizations when thinking about the future. And it's for that reason that I chose to come here and talk about the efforts to link nature, food, and climate with people, and talk about the progress and the implications of this work, because that is in keeping with this 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So you heard from Charles Godfrey that I was working for the Secretary General of the United Nations. Great job. You kind of, you're up close and advising, called into meetings. You kind of get a feeling of what's happening in and around the world, in different countries and in different, quite tricky situations. And the, the one that I worked with on this agenda was called Ban Ki-moon, a Korean, incredibly effective, hardworking, conscientious guy, really grew to love him a lot. And during my time with him, I was given responsibility for food and thinking about the future of food. 
And around the time this new agenda was being agreed, he said to me, David, I don't think that we are giving enough attention to food and the place of food in the future of people in our world. We kind of take it for granted. And so he asked me to bring together about 60 different figures from government, from civil society, from business, from the UN, to come and work in a think tank over a couple of years, infrequent meetings, once every six months, to answer his question, which is, what do we do about food in relation to this planning for the future? And we would slightly nuance this by saying we're going to focus on food systems, the systems through which food is produced, processed, distributed, marketed, made available to people, supplied in hospitals, used in institutions, uh, retailed in supermarkets. And it was really a very interesting exercise. I'm just going to give you a very short summary of what came out of this work, which is been published and is now being used by one or two organizations. <coughs> Firstly, there's not much point in having food systems if they don't contribute to people being well-nourished and healthy. And if, by any chance, the food that people are eating is actually making them sick, then that's pretty bad. And there's a small problem, which is that right at the moment, between one-third and one-half of all deaths of all people everywhere in our world are related to the diet that they're eating. So there's a bit of correction to be done on the links between food systems and nutrition and health. The most dramatic of these is an enormous epidemic we have right now of type 2 diabetes, which is causing enormous consequences in every country in the world and needs intensive intention, attention right now. The second of our the conclusion of this group was that if we want to be paying attention to the future of water supplies in aquifers, to the future of forests, to the future of key insects like pollinators, and to the future of the social fabric in the countryside all over the world, we have to start focusing on the link between food and the environment, and food systems and the ecosystem services on which we all depend. Because right at the moment, many of the problems of shortage of water, for example, in South Africa or in California, are related to competition between the agriculture sector and the domestic consumers. Number three is that, unfortunately, the countryside in many parts of the world is no longer providing employment that is considered satisfactory by young people who are coming onto the labor market. So 10 million young people coming onto the labor market each year in Africa. And the majority of them are going for their employment into towns and cities and are not staying in the countryside. And the reason for that is that the countryside, which is the haven of agriculture, and where the opportunities for employment usually come through agriculture is just not working as a magnet for employment for young people. And indeed, most communities where I have been traveling in the last few years tell me that actually farming as a sector is in real distress. And unless farmers have either got quite large assets or rather unique products, they're finding it harder and harder to make a living given the cost that they're getting for their produce compared with the amount they have to invest in making it happen. And some areas are particularly serious, like for example in this country, those who are farming sheep in the hills and dairy farming in much of Europe. But we're finding the same problem in India, same problem in China, same problem in Latin America, same problem in Africa. The rural space as a place for employment and agriculture as a sector that's attractive to young people, just not working. So that's problem three, 
is the rural environment as an economic magnet not good enough? Problem four is that if you look at agriculture as a sector, it seems to contribute, if you add together the land use changes as a result of agriculture, to around 38%, plus or minus, of greenhouse gas emissions, which means it's a major contributor to the current forces that are associated with, associated with climate change in our world. And that's a big deal. And so these four facets of food systems, impact on health and nutrition, impact on ecosystem services, links with quite a lot of distress in rural employment and impact on climate through release of greenhouse gases. These four aspects need attention and need attention now and not to be allowed to just be swept under the carpet or left alone because particular sectors accuse governments of interfering too much in people being able to decide what they want to eat when they want to eat it. It needs attention. It needs policy attention and it needs attention in terms of how finance is done. It needs attention in terms of the opportunities and support given particularly to farmers and other food producers to participate in their local economy. There are farmers in this room and I'm really pleased that they're here because we often talk about food without having farmers here. So thank you for coming. So the result of this think process and the emergence of these concerns about the future of food were then brought in to the work of the United Nations. And what's happened in the last couple of years is a real recognition that we need to find ways to work together for the future of food systems. But there is such a lot of dispute. I mean, how many people in this room have been toying with the possibility that as a result of recent studies on the impact of red meat, they want to stop eating meat? Or perhaps you're already not eating red meat at all. Perhaps many of you have made that decision. But it's a really big issue, especially for young people everywhere. How many of you have been wondering about whether or not you want to buy food that's been produced with the help of pesticides and herbicides and you'd rather actually have stuff that has had absolutely no chemical contact at all? How many of you are concerned about the fact that these days most of our consumption is based on eating four grains only? And that there are a whole load of grains that have been known and used over generations that are now virtually unavailable, not used. There are some really quite big issues that just about everybody in the world is starting to focus on in some way or other in relation to food. And some are getting extremely exercised about it. But if you bring a room full of people together and say, can we agree? on what should be done about the future of food, there will be many differences of opinion. So what a group of us have done, supported by some meaningful organizations like the EAT Foundation, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition and others, is to start a process of structured dialogues about the future of food, called the Food Systems Dialogues. We've had, so far, 1,150 people participate in these dialogues, which involve between eight to 10 people sitting around a table, considering a key aspect on the future of food, but people with very different backgrounds and just simply exploring together what this might mean in a political sense and in an operational sense to shift food systems so they're more nutritious, to sift them so they're more sustainable, engaging with the supermarkets, engaging with the advertisers, bringing on board the medics who are talking about the disease implications and having a really good discussion about it. We've done one in Britain, the start of a new 
exercise to develop a food strategy for the UK which will involve having dialogue all over the country. And we've also been doing them in many other parts of the world, 21 different locations, as I said. And I just thought I'd share with you what's coming out of these dialogues. Number one, an immense enthusiasm by people who participate in them. It's usually three hours, and they don't go away. Just recently, I was in Montpellier at a meeting of the Urban Food Policy Pact, and we were expecting perhaps 50 people there, and we had about 200 people, and it was standing room only, and they just came in, and they didn't want to stop talking. And that's what's happening. There's an enormous groundswell of interest among public, among professionals, in debating the future of food and food systems. So out of this come the following key conclusions. One, unless the full correct price is paid for food, there will be corners cut at all times in terms of production methods. And you can't blame the farmers for this, because they have to cope with the price that they're given, usually by the wholesalers. And if the wholesalers push the price down, then there's very little incentive for farmers to change their production systems so that they are more humane or more sustainable. So that means that the first conclusion that's coming out of this is it's necessary to reconsider how we pay for food and whether we value in the price we pay for food the environmental or societal damage that's being done by the food, and we actually build into the cost a reflection of particularly the environmental, uh, environmental services that are used in production. Super difficult stuff. No government wants to spend a lot of time thinking we're going to up the price of food so as to help improve the economy. You'll have gilets jaunes out on the street, the UK equivalent thereof, super fast. So this is tough but it's there. There's a real sense that some way has got to be found, as a colleague just said to me when we were walking around the park just now, to cover the costs of the externalities of food production. The second big conclusion is that in order to get moving on that, farmers must be involved in the discussions on the future of food from, top to, from start to finish, in whichever part of the world. Don't cut the farmers out. Don't cut the fishermen out, or fisherwomen out. Don't cut the people who are foraging for food in the forest. Don't cut the livestock producers out. They must be there in the discourse. Because if they're not, they feel very much despised, and if they feel despised, they will not cooperate. So engage and involve, particularly as these, this is the community that have in their hands the power to safeguard the environment for our future. They can safeguard the watersheds. They can safeguard the soil. They can determine whether or not there's fertilizer runoff into the rivers and into seas. So they are truly the custodians of the land and custodians of the shore, and they need to be involved. The second part of the outcome of the Food Systems Dialogues is one that I think many of you would resonate with, which is if excess sugar consumption or excess consumption of saturated fats is killing people, why on earth are the instruments, the sort of social incentives, the economic incentives, favoring the massive production of these kinds of foods? For example, confectionery companies, a lot of them are producing their products using raw materials that have been made available as a result of subsidies. Is that right? And the general conclusion seems to be, particularly when you look at the economics of this, that unless there is policy action to make it easier for people to eat in a more healthy and nutritious way, then we're stuck in a vicious circle of people eating food that is making them sick, and their sickness costing health services enormous amounts of money and affecting their well-being. So the two big conclusions of the dialogues are bring the farmers in and make certain that we pay much more attention to the health and nutrition consequences of food. So that's fine. You have dialogues and you have lots of people taking part, and I believe these dialogues are going to go on and spread out 
far and wide all over the world. We've got kits to enable people to do dialogues, what we call dialogues in a box, and we've started a website for assembling all the results of the dialogues. But what happens next? And that's where we're beginning to see linkages between people, food, and health, and climate coming on board more and more in governments around the world, whether it's governments like Mexico who are putting a, a tax on sugar, or whether it's India which is looking very hard at whether or not to continue to subsidize fertilizers, or China that's changed the pattern of agriculture subsidies. These now are decisions that are being made more and more in government. And I think that it's fair to say that the reason why governments are starting to move in that direction is they're beginning to get messages from the public that it's necessary to pay some attention to the links between food and health, food and the environment, food and climate. And that then is the result of public pressure. It would not necessarily have happened if it had just been left to the people who normally do policy. I think the public involvement in thinking more and more about food has made a big difference. So having sort of given you this and talked a little bit about the dialogues, I thought I'd just spend a couple of minutes saying what also has happened in the last couple of years is a real upsurge in really good interdisciplinary research that links together these issues of food, environment, health, climate, and nature more generally. This interdisciplinary research is offering new ways of thinking about the linkages. So here we have, in Oxford, the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative being led by somebody who's sitting in the front row. And that is an example of the kind of effort to indicate the relationship between the respect for nature and environment on the one hand and the well-being of people and societies on the other. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time now going into this question of nature and the role of nature in the future because I think that just as people have started to be more and more involved in discussions about food, which is leading to companies and governments rethinking what they're doing and cities changing the way in, in which they're dealing with food. So a new force is emerging relating to nature and what I call living systems that hasn't yet caught fire in the same way as food has, but I think will pick up more in the coming months and years. And I think that taken together, the movement on food and the movement on nature will have a big impact on the kind of world we're going to have in the future. So let me tell you about this. Some of you know, right deep inside, that there is a profound relationship between natural systems, that is, obviously trees, wetlands, peatlands, grasslands, what happens in waterways and in rivers and in lakes, what happens in coastlines and in the seas and in the oceans, what happens in the interface between land, sea, and atmosphere, these natural systems which have been on the earth for centuries are very much a precious resource on which humanity will depend for the well-being of future generations. Our children, our children's children, their children. And the generic term given for this is nature, but in nature, we're including a variety of different ecosystems, each with their own properties, each with their own opportunities, each with their own value. But if you look at how accounting is done, if you look at how economics is used to help making decisions, giving value to nature has not been a habit in much modern governance. So as a result of the work that's being done to show the contribution of nature to people's well-beings, the contribution of nature to the opportunities we have in the future, whether it is in food or in the, what's happening in the seas and the oceans or what's happening in fresh water or what's happening 
in the land, that economic work and that new way of thinking that gives value to nature is going to creep more and more and become more and more inserted into decision-making in government. It's already happening. The way it really came out was that in planning for a climate summit in September this year, China, together with New Zealand, Costa Rica, Fiji, Portugal, and Norway, formed a coalition of countries with representation from government, civil society, and business to establish a better narrative on how nature should be factored into discussions in countries as a contributor to climate action, as a contributor to securing a better future in terms of species diversity, as a contributor to the future of rural environments and coastlines. Now you could say, probably for most of you, that's blindingly obvious. Nature matters to everyone in this room, but it's not factored into governance. Increasingly, chucking stuff in the sea or throwing stuff away in other ways or cutting down trees or setting fire to forests <coughs> is seen to be something that is somehow permissible without sanction by governments or by businesses. But the position developed by China and the other countries I mentioned, that's now been endorsed by 30 countries in the United Nations context, is basically saying, stop that, value nature, because without nature we don't have a decent hope for the future. Now, it needs a lot of science to get it right, to work out how do you value a mature forest in the Amazon versus a plantation forest in Scandinavia? How do you value the protection of coastline by mangroves when we've got more and more evidence that that's possibly the only thing that protects poor people when they get hit by a tropical storm from being washed away and killed? How do you value that? Answer, it's a huge value and it's time to put numbers on it and treat it as proper economics. And there is Professor Das Gupta and team in Cambridge, but others now beginning to develop the economic analysis. It requires very, very good multi-centered working involving people in local communities. Because they know the answers. They may be living in the Delta in Bangladesh or they may be living in the Sahel. They know how they use nature to maintain their lives and they know better than us. So it requires painstaking work of working with local communities to get the information about the value of nature and then to put a cost on it and then to find ways to finance it. So that is the current emphasis that's on now. We've been a bit knocked sideways with some of our thinking about how to take it forward because there was going to be a meeting in Santiago, Chile in December where we would have brought together the different people working on this and advanced the subject, but that's been uh, postponed. But we will pick it up again in various events coming next year. There's a big biodiversity conference in Kunming in China in October next year, and then there's a big climate event in Glasgow, UK, in December next year. Next year? Next year, yeah. And we will use those as ways of really weaving the different subject areas together to create the new disciplines for what I call nature-based living, which are the disciplines needed to establish government, finance, boardroom management, curricula in classrooms, plus the software to support them. Where are you? There. And all the various different things that are needed to make this happen. So that weaving, it's more than linking, it's weaving together disciplines is the work for next year and leading into the year after. And we will bring the nature weave alongside the food weave to try to make sure that in the process, Things are not separated, but are kept together, whether it's in government or in business or in civil society or di between different professional groups. Now you can say, is this fantasy or is he talking for real? You're being very kind to listen to this. Answer, I am talking for real.
And the way in which I believe that we will be able to make this happen is by finding ways to work together to create new styles of decision-making, but outside the existing departmental structure in government or um, faculty structure in universities. And it involves something that my colleagues and I actually stumbled across after we'd been doing it for some years. We thought somebody must have written about it. And yes, there is a theory, and it's called living systems leadership. So I'll give you the, take it apart. One, leadership, because when you're trying to change the way things have do, are, are being done and work outside normal, normal patterns of organization of thought, you have to be ready to be a leader, which means taking risks and working with others to make sure that you get the best possible result, to make life better for others. Systems is essential because all the issues we're talking about involve the interaction between different systems in society. They're not processes that are occurring as a result of linear processes. A gives, a result to, gives, gives rise to B. No, they are interactive processes where the result is due to multiple systems, each with their own characteristics. And living systems, because these are about systems that involve people, but they also involve other living organisms. They might be microorganisms in your microbiome. They might be organisms uh, in the animal kingdom, in the plant kingdom, in the fungal kingdom. That doesn't matter. What matters is that we recognise these are living systems which means you have to treat them differently from mechanical systems because they have very different properties. And this science of working with living systems, if I could just have the projector on, Claire, just for a second, takes us into a different way of working that I just wanted to share with you before I close. I can stand here and tell you. If you want to make change in the way in which things get done, a vital attribute to have at the beginning is to be able to connect intensively between disciplines, between people, between groups with different interests. But the connecting has to be particularly profound because it means working with people you would not normally get on with. Sitting with people you would not normally sit opposite in a meeting room. Writing to people who would not normally be receiving emails from you. You can't do this if you go into the work so principled that you say, I won't sit down with them because they're meat eaters and I'm a vegan. No, you've got to be able to communicate and communicate with people with whom you have radical differences of opinion because it's out of that that the magic of transformation can happen. Secondly, it all depends on people. You can't make changes outside the normal disciplinary or ideological boundaries if you just work with institutions, because institutions tend to try to keep the same basic characteristics. But the people inside these institutions, as many of you will find if you talk to others in this room, there's always exciting and interesting people to work with. But it's focusing on three things, focusing on the common identity, working for a, a better world for everybody, focusing on the relationships between people, because it's relationships that determine how teams work, and creating the trust that is necessary to share, to share information, ideas, and emotions. Networks are how change happens, and that kind of work that I'm involved in is all about networks. As I've already said, you can't get new ways of thought without encouraging dialogue that explores priorities and trade-offs when decisions are made. Because shifting the way in which decisions are made involves shifting the priorities that are applied to the decision choices and shifting the variables that are applied when you're making trade-offs. It's not difficult stuff, but it does involve a lot of dense politics. And to get into the politics, you have to do it through looking at decision-making 
and priorities and trade-offs. But then when you've started to put together the new way of thought and action, then comes the really exciting part, because you create a new narrative. What does food mean to us? Instead of seeing it as fuel, we see it as nourishment. We see it as love and respect, and also something to keep people healthy. You don't want to give loving food that's stuff full of cream and other stuff, if at the same time you're worried it's going to kill somebody. So there's a whole way of adjusting the narrative around food so that it has value. And within the narratives come the pathways. That's where the scientists help us by saying, well, you make choices, you go this way, that way, that's where the choices are. And there's so much exciting work developed to frame the journey and then to cradle the process because the new processes don't emerge without a lot of care. And the care is done through creating the cradles with which, within which people interact. And then the coalitions can be built Working together, you get five, six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred different organizations working together and becoming a movement for change. And then we start the cycle again. So all I want to do is to say to you that this process is happening, but it involves a different way of working that we call living systems leadership. And to get there, we have to have certain skills. We have to be super comfortable with complexity. We can't do this work if we just want to simplify everything. We have to welcome complexity. Get off on it. We have to then also welcome different understandings. Not everybody sees things the same way. Fine. It's the absolute reverse of the sort of Facebook mentality. You are working with people who see things differently. You value networks because you see them as the most powerful source for change. And you appreciate the potential of coalitions, and you anticipate new paradigms to emerge. And just to finish it, what do we need to be able to do to get into this way of working? It's kind of interesting. Because if somebody had said to me 20 years ago, as you get older, you're going to have to be able to get better at holding competing perspectives in your mind at the same time. I would have said, no, surely, as you get older, you get more certain that X is right and Y is wrong. Surely that's what's going to happen to me. But it hasn't happened like that. As I've got older, I've realized that to be able to hold different perspectives in my mind without getting too fussed about what is right or what is wrong is absolutely key to doing this kind of work because everybody has a different view of the food system or the health system or the climate system, and that's legitimate. It's okay. And it only gets funny when you try to say, well, there's an ideology, and you've got to, all got to respect the ideology. But I'm saying try to break free of the ideologies of academic discipline and the ideologies of belief system if you're going to do this kind of work. See the whole system differently to the separate parts, because it's the whole system that really excites us when we're looking at things through new eyes. Feel into the pace and the rhythm. Don't try to change things when they're not ready to be changed. That's why this work requires intense patience and at the same time incredible opportunism, so that when the moment is right, you go for it. It's like being a disc jockey, but a disc jockey of life. Fourthly, always recognize that systems vary in relation to their environments. That I think everybody would here would understand. And lastly, meet people right where they really are, not where you think they should be. Anyway, this is living systems work. This is the kind of work that I believe, as a result of the work I've been, what I've been doing over the last few years, will lead to paradigm shifts that will bring together work we do around people and their well-being, nature and its centrality in our lives, food as something that's of vital concern to all 7.6 billion people on our planet, and climate, because unless we really get it together on climate, we're going to be all in deep trouble. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it, and I'd love to stay in touch. Uh, thank you.
thanks, David, for an extraordinary wide-ranging uh, conversation. I'm sure there are going to be lots of questions. And who would like to go first? A lady with the white top there. How are you doing? I'm sorry, uh, just to remind everyone, this is being broadcast. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, Means be most outspoken, please. Yes. <laughs> um, so my question relates to you talking about the taxation of food. Um, I didn't hear what you said. Sorry. sorry uh, my question relates to you talking about the taxation of food. Um, so, I mean, this comes down to the idea of food as a commodity rather than a right anyway, which I think is maybe an ideology it might be good to think about breaking free from. But if we put that aside and take that as given and, and look at it in purely economic terms, um, the social cost of the environmental damage done by food production at the moment is mostly felt by the consumers, the people that are going to buy the food. Um, and I agree that farmers shouldn't feel that taxation either because farmers are equally pushed uh, and um, equally struggle in the system. But there are a group of people that, that do benefit and those are the people selling the fossil fuels that own the uh, intellectual property rights to seeds and that are producing the chemicals that are input into our food system as well. Um, and I don't understand the logic in the consumer feeling both the social cost of the environmental damage and then having to pay the economic cost, the taxation on the food, when the people that are benefiting from the social cost can then go scot-free uh, and, and feel none of the blame. So how would you, excuse me, if you were, uh, if you keep the mic just for a second, because this is, the, the way you phrase the question, I think, opens up the dilemma that I'm feeling more and more, which is, it's just grossly unfair to ask consumers to cover the cost that results from things that are nothing to do with them, uh, such as, as you say, environmentally damaging aspects of food production, especially when these are linked to other harmful commercial practices. So I just ask you, do you have, in your view, if you're doing work on this, a model of, of how the cost should be parsed between the different potential contributors, or is this not something you've been working on? In a vague way, um, I, I would see that the people that are having a, a genuine economic benefit from the social cost being felt of the environmental damage are the people, for the most part, selling inputs to farmers. And in the case of tenant farmers, probably the people that own the land, um, particularly landowners that are benefiting, for example, in this country from uh, cap payments uh, without necessarily fulfilling any um, of their environmental obligations. So I think there are, there are plenty of people uh, who we could tax, the people that uh, are making a great deal of money from extracting and selling fossil fuels, who are benefiting from owning intellectual property rights to organisms, people that are creating chemical inputs, and that create a farming system that is destructive to the environment, is creating really unhealthy food for us, as you said, uh, a very limited diet that's centered on just a handful of crops, which is affecting uh, the genetic resilience as well of our biodiversity and our food. And it's, it's not good for the farmers and it's not good for the consumers that the people that stand to benefit are the people that are at the top of that chain and they should feel the, the taxation. And it's interesting just to complete this exchange that I think in the uh, European Parliament and in the European Commission, probably more than in any other political environment, this is now really coming through strongly. It, it needs care because we've got to be, get, get the science right before identifying particular practices that are harmful. But I sense that looking ahead a few years, the pattern of both subsidy and taxation in relation to agricultural inputs will change. I, I think it will happen rather quicker in the European setting than perhaps in some of the North American settings, but let's wait and see. But I, I personally believe that the point of view you're expressing is getting more and more into the mainstream, I believe. Thank you. Would you agree that, that consumers and farmers shouldn't feel that tax, though? I, I'm against the idea that consumers should have to pay 
and indeed that farmers should have to pay for destructive action that is perhaps uh, more the responsibility of others. I'm being very careful how I say it, but I hope that you got my point. Thank you. Hello there. Thank you so much for coming to speak today. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I'm a business student at Said Business School, and so I'd really like to hear your perspective on the responsibility of business to contribute to the change that you're talking about today. So uh, if you, let us imagine that you are a chief executive of one of the largest multinational food companies and you're looking at your business strategy for the next 10 years. What are you thinking when you have your private discussions in your boardroom about what that business strategy should be like? I'll bet you that you're starting to see a very different kind of world where your consumers are wanting to look not just at what the food they buy is going to do for their bodies and their minds, but you're also getting consumers who are saying, was this food produced in a way that is environmentally sustainable or environmentally damaging? Uh, is this food compatible with climate or is it contributing unnecessarily to climate change? And were the farmers or the fishers or others who are involved in producing this food getting an adequate remuneration or were they being ripped off? And I actually am seeing more and more business leaders asking these questions and asking them in quite a deep way. So one quite large company that does confectionery and, and animal food and other things has recently been saying to itself, we've been having a pretty consistent business model for the last hundred years. How do we need to change our business model for the next hundred years? But I think that the food sector, and particularly the food sector that's dealing with hyper-processed foods, will be changing its business model within the next 10 years, not the next 100 years. And I think the reason why their business model will change is that their consumers will start expressing preferences with more, um, more volume, possibly with the, the actual purchase of the products. That's not necessarily the same. Secondly, their employees are beginning to say, we want to be part of a business and an industry that is ethically viable and uh, sustainable. And thirdly, their suppliers are being brought into the discussion. So I think there are going to be more and more significant changes in the food sector. I'm trying not to say whether people ought to do something or not, because I don't think that's useful. I'm just saying this is a pattern that I'm seeing happening. Talk to you about it afterwards, if you Thank like. Thank you very much. Thank you. A question right at the front. <laughs> Thanks very much, David. I'm, I'm wondering, in your dialogues, the many dialogues that yeah. you have held, how effectively do they expose the power relationships between the many interacting players, whether it's nature, agriculture, climate change, and so on? You spoke at one point in your talk about the value of nature, but you also implied, of course, that there are many values of nature, uh, conflicting values of nature. So how, how effectively do you expose the power structures in those relationships? Who gets to choose? When we started the food systems dialogues, we had a choice. Do we try to run them as technical discussions and minimize the, the debates about the politics, about who's got the power to make change? Or do we keep them as essentially political because and if you're going to try to make change, power is the most vital variable of all to include into your matrix. Well, we didn't have to think about it. The moment the dialogues started, they became intense and passionate about the power dynamics in the food sector. And I think both when talking about food and when talking about nature, we get very quickly into power issues. But that's in a way why I am saying, Chris, that 
the increased engagement of consumers, if we're talking about businesses, or the voting public, if we're talking about governance, in debating these issues is going to have an impact on policy. And I think it's going to happen quicker than many of us who've watched policy change in the last 30 or 40 years would predict. Like here, a year ago, none of us, I think, would have predicted that four and a half million young people were going to be on the streets on September the 21st, really, I think, really sensibly and civilly asking political leaders to take climate futures seriously. That has happened. Now, we believe, myself and colleagues in the, in the UN process, that for the four and a half million who were on the streets, there were 10, 20, 30 times as many who were sympathizing but weren't there. And that's just something that's happened in one year. And they're not simply saying, we're going to protest and then go home and go to school or whatever or go to university. It's we're engaged now, and you're not going to shake us off. We're actually wanting to be part of these discussions. Because we count. Because we don't believe government is actually governing for the future. We think government is governing for the present, and we think that's wrong. So, Chris, I actually think we must relish the fact that we're talking here about issues of power. And we must be anticipating and expecting the participation in power around the future of food or the value given to nature from a greatly increasing number of people. And that, just to, to, to get the phrase in that I wanted to say, but I was looking for the place to say it. That's why I am what I call a stubborn optimist. Not because I'm just walking around being an optimist because I like to be an optimist, but because I actually am totally of the opinion that humanity, in the form of people, particularly younger people, will take this stuff on and will not let us go on with arrangements that are damaging to people and to the planet in the way that we have. So that's my view on that one. Question here, and then the lady with the blue top. Great. I, I just wanted to ask uh, how indigenous people and subsistence farmers not consumers by definition and therefore get treated as very poor are being brought into this discussion part of the work thank you for that question sorry i should i should just say first of all those of you who have to leave thank you for coming and secondly thank you for your questions if we are trying to have dialogue and if we accept that in any environment there are power relations that tend to exclude key people from the dialogue it is really our responsibility to find ways to engage those who would otherwise be excluded, yet whose interests have to be taken into account in the discussion. There are, we believe, somewhere in the region of half a billion smallholder farmers in the world and about 170 million indigenous peoples in the world. One of the things that I really like about working within the UN structure is that the fact that these people are often, in normal parlance, excluded from debates about policy and practice, and often not participating in political processes, has been recognized over the years in the UN. So mechanisms for the engagement of indigenous peoples in the broader UN process, and mechanism for the involvement of smallholder farmers in the UN food process are there. However, the work I'm doing on the Food Systems Dialogues is not a UN process. And we realized quite early on that unless we make a special effort to bring in those groups who are not at the tables, they won't come. But it's more than that. I mean, you realize sometimes how stupid you are when you just don't think of these things. But my friends from uh, Australian indigenous communities told me, we just can't come to your dialogues 
if you don't let us come in a few days early, get to meet some of your people, get to understand your idioms, how you're going to talk, get to feel the structure of the buildings, and the, we've got to feel the spirits in the building as well. I mean, it's not sort of simple stuff, but we, you've got to give us the space and the opportunity to do this, which means you have to find the money to make sure that we can come and the people who accompany us. And the same applies with smallholder farmers. So the one thing that I think we often need to be reminded of is that if you want to include people who've got less power, you have to make a special effort. So another example is we wanted to try to make sure that people who are genuinely food poor could participate in the dialogues in the UK. And it was pointed out to us that bringing really quite poor people along to a meeting where there are a lot of really well-off people is in itself a very tricky thing to do. It's difficult for them. So this has been not the easiest issue, and it's one that I need to be, we all need to be continuously reminded of. I thank you for bringing it up. Thank you. Question there. And thank you for your talk. As I listen to your description of living systems leadership and on from what you've just said now, it sounds very similar to citizens' assemblies, which actually Oxford City has already held. It's already held one on the, on, uh, the climate emergency. Brilliant. And um, a citizens' assembly overcomes some of the problems you're describing because it, it's like a jury service, but it also picks a cross-section of society very consciously, rather like a scientific experiment. Yeah. Um, so it sounds very similar to what you're doing. I mean, I just wondered if you had any comments on citizens' assemblies as a way forward. First of all, what I described about the processes that we're using both in the dialogues and living systems leadership, they are not unique. And you're right that in so many societies there are different processes that enable people to be involved. I'm particularly interested in the citizens' assembly process because of what you said, that it is you're selected, I believe, by some kind of lottery process, but there are also constituencies. So it's very difficult to end up with a, uh, an entirely non-representative community. And, and I'm, I like that, number one. Number two is that what we're trying to do with the dialogues is to maintain them as a regular process so that you don't just have one session, but you go on with a particular view to finding points of common interest and ability to form coalitions. I'm not sure whether that comes out of the Citizens' Assembly you described, but it is coming out of many of the similar kind of new ways of working in other countries where I've been, particularly involving indigenous people. So what I would like to suggest is that any of these processes that enables dialogue and discussion is the kind of thing we ought to be encouraging to help create a future that's fit for, for generations to come. And let's share, and, uh, uh, and I'll just put up my email at the end, uh, please don't hesitate to share any experiences you've got, because the more we can network and weave, the more likely we are to bring about change. It won't be done by fragmentation. Thank you. Thank you. Question right at the front here, and I think this will be the last question. Um. Okay. Hi, Dr. Navarro. Uh, Hello. My name's Rohan. I'm an undergraduate uh, at the, the University of Oxford. I noticed that you talked a lot about um, bringing young people into the discussion yeah. and um, some of the climate movement that's happened. Uh, what are some areas that you feel that youth uh, could be more involved, that you'd like to see youth be more involved in, uh, that are currently, they're underrepresented? Thank you very much indeed. Uh, just, um, this is a tricky question. I want to say to you straight away, there you are. I've put, put my email address up there if the projector comes on. This is a tricky question because uh, I would like younger people to be involved in all aspects of governance in every institution, in every geographical area or administration, and in every issue that's dealing with challenges for the future because I just don't see the point of you relying on older people who are going to be dead in 20 or 30 years' time to actually make decisions that are going to influence the chances you have in your life. But I don't know how to do it. I mean, what, what we tried in the, in the UN process was creating processes, uh, creating new ways of working with young people, and we had a big summit, you might know, on the 21st of September. But I worry that it's a flash in the pan. 
and that we will slip back into the usual system of just pulling people from the usual places to come and make decisions. So I don't have an answer, but I think it's one of the most important issues that we ought to walk away from here with. And I encourage you to not give up in making certain that your participation in decision-making processes is genuine and not tokenistic and is continuous and not staccato. So thank you for making the point. And if that's the last point, that's a very good point to end on. Thanks very much. I guess just a parochial question for those of you who are UK citizens, and one way you can make a difference is to vote on December the wherever it is. Um, David, it's been a really fabulous uh, hour and a bit. Uh, you brought up so many different things. I think what has really come across is your absolute passion mm -hmm. for uh, health, for the environment, for nature. And you talk about bringing down barriers and uh, moving across silos. Right. I think your career sort of uh, embodies that movement in, go yeah. in going across. Yeah. So thank you again for Thanks. coming to Oxford, and thank you again for such a such interesting talk. Thank you. Could I just... <laughs> I'd just like to thank... Um, my son is here, Tom. He's just sitting in the front. Thank you for coming. And uh, my daughter, Polly, might be... My daughter, Polly, is here. Both of them have got children less than two. About two. Uh, this is why, why, why we do this. Thank you very much. Thank you.